Welcome back to episode 11 of Supreme Myths. I have a very special guest today, um, someone I first met in 1971, haven't oh, talked to <laughs> haven't talked to since, but we'll get back to that at the end of the podcast. Uh, Nina Sadowski is, uh, she went to college at Connecticut College. She graduated from Cardozo Law. She currently, I think, describes herself as an entertainment lawyer in recovery. So we're going to talk about that. She's a Hollywood producer who has helped produce all kinds of movies you've heard of, like The Wedding Planner and Lost Souls and The House of um, Sand and Fog. I think you worked on Northern Lights, one of my favorite television shows of all time. Without, I didn't know you had worked on that. Um, now Nina is an author. She's written four books um, for Ballantine Books. Her last one, Convince Me. Everybody should read that. Uh, Nina, it's really great to see you again. Uh, really great to see you too, her. <laughs> and welcome. Um, so Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. We're going to talk about you being a lawyer in recovery in a minute. But before we do that, <laughs> I start off. I start off. I'm interested in that. Someday I want to be a law professor in recovery. Maybe, <laughs> maybe sooner rather than later, but we'll see. Um, so I usually ask my guests to give me three myths, hence supreme myths, uh, about something they're experts in. And I think okay. at this point you are certainly an expert in the business of Hollywood, the business of making movies. Can you give us three myths about anything involving Hollywood movies, producing, all that stuff? Okay, sure. Um well, one, I don't know if it's a myth, but I think it certainly would dispel a confusion is that nobody knows what a producer actually does. I was um, going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one really does. And, and, and that's in part because a producer can be many different things, and it also depends what medium you're in. You know, and, and one small example is that in feature films, um, you have to have a, the full producer credit. Producer, that's it, the simple credit, um, in order to collect the Oscar. And you can only have three producers. Um, in TV, the executive producer credit is actually the more valuable credit. And executive producers are usually the writer producers. Um, and in television, the writer is the primary voice, whereas that's not the case in film. So there, what what a producer does, and and which I think most people think is you know sit around and smoke cigars and yell at people. <laughs> I think that's one sort of stereotypical. Uh, but I don't like cigars, and I always believed in love leadership when I was producing movies. So. Okay, so one myth is we don't know what producers do. We don't um, know what producers do. Um, another Number two would probably be that the business is glamorous, uh, which it is not at all. Uh, making content means, you know, 12 to 18-hour days. You know, uh, it means uh, more disappointment and rejection, uh, times a hundred for everything you actually see get made. Um, so I think people have an allure about it. I think there's an allure to it that's really not the case. It's a, it's a business for the tough. <laughs> Only the strong survive. <laughs> um, and a third myth, I'd say, um, hmm, that's interesting. Um, I think a third myth is that Hollywood is a liberal bastionism, bastion of elitism, um, and I think that's not actually the case at all. I think it's a very messy place that is figuring out its own uh, comeuppances with race and, and misogyny um, and just sort of the culture we're in as much as any place else. 
um, and that uh, people are revealing themselves, not always pleasantly, um, and even the people who are moving forward with the best of intentions are struggling. So that third one, Nina, mm -hmm. uh, and those are all, I'm going to return to the producer one, but that third one is really interesting and I guess will bring us to a more serious mode than I was going to get early on, but I am <laughs> yeah. really interested in that. So certainly I assume, and maybe I'm just dead wrong about this, mm -hmm. most of the power structure in Hollywood, I assume, votes Democratic and supports Democratic candidates. Um, I, I, there are, I would say most, yes, but I would also say that there are very wealthy people um, who are in the power structure in Hollywood who are, um, ha have one, one view, which is the protect the wealth view. And so our, and I know some of these people, I'm not going to out anyone because that would be impolitic. Oh, you sure? Uh, that would, but that would make my I, podcast, my little teeny <laughs> podcast would get so big. I haven't, I haven't stayed alive in Hollywood, you know, this long <laughs> without picking up some street smarts. So, but, you know, I, people that have really surprised me, you know, um, and sometimes it's the, the narrow minded one issue Israel question. Sometimes it's the narrow minded one issue wealth question um, and protecting what they've got. And, uh, you know, I think that, I mean, I don't understand any one issue voter from any part of the spectrum. I, you know, I just think that's, you know, very reductive. So, right. you know, like just, but, um, you know, people certainly are that. And, and as I said before, even, even those of us who are doing the best we can and, and consider ourselves you know, progressive and open-minded and inclusive, you know, I think we're all wrestling. And, you know, we live in cancel culture, which makes it very difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it's very hard. I mean, I'm, I'm actually working on a new book now, and I decided to make one of the main characters a black man. And, um, you know, I, I have enlisted uh, members of my community, um, both men and women that are black to talk to who are going to be my beta readers and who have allowed me to interview them. Um, and I was inspired to do this for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because all my work covers social justice. It's all embedded in, sure. I've you know, behind a slick thriller, but you know, like <laughs> the new one convinced me is about pathological lying and how it's creating yeah. division and destruction in our society. Right. But it's wrapped up as a psychological thriller. Right. right. Um, but so, um, anyway, the, I, I digress, which I yeah. often tend to well, do. Well, no, that's <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what, want to stick on this topic, just two minutes yeah. more, if you, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, sure. I thought I heard you say, and, and I guess, you know, I am a bleeding heart progressive all the way down right. with very strange views about the Supreme Court for Yes. <laughs> but leaving, leaving, leaving that aside, I was kind of hoping, I, 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 after Harvey Weinstein and everything, I, I, I had no doubt that sexual harassment was a huge issue everywhere in America, yeah. and Hollywood wouldn't be an exception to that. If anything, it might yeah. be worse given yeah. the focus on the bodies that Hollywood seems to have. Mm -hmm. But what does surprise me in what you said, leaving aside sexual harassment, is – does Hollywood have the same amount of a kind of ra racism and, and, and issues with people of color that are so prevalent in our culture outside of Hollywood? Oh, oh absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, and it's interesting because um, I've really gotten to witness it um, 
a little bit up close. I about three, almost three years ago, I guess, I partnered with a, a manager um, who is the first time I've really felt a, I've had a rep who was a partner in my career, right? I've had a, a lot of different representation managers, agents, but I really felt something very different about this relationship. And he's a black man. And I have seen firsthand how it changes the dynamic. Um, wow. You know, I, and, and there was a, a time recently when we were on the phone about a project and um, it was not a Zoom call uh, for, you know, you, an, an unusual thing for these times. So yeah. no one was visible. And there was a white person on the phone who began talking about, you know, whether we should shift something, whether I would consider shifting something I had written um, to make the characters African-American or actually, as I've learned to say, black African-American is the wrong thing to say. Um, and it was it's completely antithetical to what the story is. Right. It's not it's not a black. It would, would have been it would have been the worst kind of, I think, overcompensation. Right. To squeeze a family that did not belong in the environment that we had created. And I'm dealing with race and race in other ways in this environment, but this was a bad suggestion. And so he spoke up, my manager, and identified himself as a black person and said why this would be, you know, just <laughs> ridiculous. And, you know, the other person on the phone, you know, kind of withered and died, you know, because, and it wasn't, it wasn't that they did anything racist, right? They were responding to a marketplace that in a very reactive way now has made you know, black stories and black writers insanely popular because everyone is trying to overcompensate to show that you know, they are not racist. And look, I'll take it, you know? But that's very different from adjusting systemic racism and really making efforts to be an anti-racist society, right? That, it's just a different ball you on, know we're at a different marker on that so on that last point and this does get a little bit into what i write about and think about because i write and think about race a lot um mm -hmm. and um i just recently wrote a piece on institutional racism that's one piece and a separate one on how trump's racism is america's racism i'm curious so if someone i don't know how this works so the language i'm going to use is probably totally silly okay. but if okay. someone had a script a really yeah. powerful taught script about America today, not 10 years a slave, not segregation in the 60s, but America mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. that was dramatically wonderful. A, a good story. I mean, I, you know, we all know it has to have a good story. It has, yeah. it has a good story, but it shows institutional racism today starkly for what it is. Yeah. Could that movie get yeah. made in Hollywood, even if it had the best story possible? Well, I don't know about a movie. I, I think it could get made um, in for television uh, or streaming. And mm -hmm. I think it's sort of important to acknowledge how the change in technology and how we both make and consume media is affecting how stories yeah. are being told, right? You know, the movie business, and who knows what it's going to be post-pandemic, right? But that was the business of swing for the fences, you know, it has... has in my opinion, devolved to the business. So yes. swing for the fences, movies that are going to satisfy everything, what they call a four-quadrant movie, which means right. men, women, all ages, right? And so that's what it is. That's why we have superhero movies and, you know, 
science fiction that those are the that's what the movie business is within the world of network television cable premium cable and streaming however there's a lot more room for niche programming right and for stories that can be told that don't have to hit everybody right and, so, and if you look if you just examine you know what's on what you can get through your television or through your computer these days you really see that you can find almost anything for any person yeah. um so it reduces the number of eyeballs you need to have so therefore you know and and the risks and so again the other thing would be what's the price point right you can't just be talking about as a story is it a good story that should always be number one but no decision in hollywood is made without also looking at who is the market is this the right price point meaning can we make this movie for a number or this show for a number that we will be able to recoup on, right? Right. Um, what else is on our slate? What else do we have? Do we need something that's contemporary about race? Or did we last season buy four shows about race that we can't get off the ground and don't, you know, are mired in development? You know, who, who made the phone call? Who's pitching it to them matters? Is it someone who was delivered from them before? Or is it a great script by someone they've never heard of that would, they would be reluctant to take a risk on, right? So the, you know, the question of, right. I mean, I, I teach this when I teach film students because I, you know, if you don't understand, I, I started naive, wide-eyed, believing that if I had great material, it would find a home. And I, I learned, you know, and it, it just made me smarter. Unless you know what the obstacles are ahead of you, you don't know how to get around them, right? Yeah. So I, I know how to, uh, you know, I know how to look at the situation and say. Yeah, well, I'll take a shot, but there are 90 things there that I'm not seeing that are impacting whether the story gets right. sold. It's so, for someone who loves movies, and I do, I really love them, um, it is so hard for me to think of it as a business in that way. I know it is. I know it is. <laughs> but but I, don't, I don't want to think about it that way. And I think about, and, and I'm sure I know nothing about this, but like I think about Quentin Tarantino and um, his first mo big movie, uh, Pulp Fiction. Um, which I just happen to love, whether we don't get into that, but I think it's a fantastic right, movie. Yeah. Could someone like him get that movie made today? Well, I mean, there's always room for visionaries to break through. And, okay. and one of the things that's happened is that the film business has really become democratized by technology. I mean, you can shoot an entire film on your phone. You can right. edit it. My kids know, do it all phone. the time. <laughs> right. I mean, and I would say, I think it's sort of wonderful that anyone could make a movie, but does that mean everybody should be making movies? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, there, there. I think a lot of that's, oh, here, this just should have been my other myth about Hollywood. Everyone thinks, oh, I could do that. Right. Right. Everyone thinks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone, how hard could it be to write a script? How hard could it be, you know, to, it's hard work. <laughs> it's hard. Um, the, the, I think in the pursuit of creating any art, and I, I feel this way. <coughs> excuse me about my no, my novels too. The real skill is making it look so seamless in the consumption that the viewer or the reader has no idea of all the scaffolding that you as the artist put behind to create it. So that's that's really where the hard work is. You have some really excellent videos up um, on your website, or I think it's your website, or someplace about how to write. And 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 mm. one of them was math for writers, which scared me, but I watched it anyway. Um, and what <laughs> it, and and what is writing? And it, and it, and I th I think I think that good legal writing isn't that much different. 
um, especially these days with, with mm-hmm. blogs mm-hmm. And, and other forms. Um, you know, up until tenure, we have to write law review articles in the traditional form. But, but once that is over, I, I think a good law review article or a good legal essay, you don't see the scaffolding. I, I agree with that. Yeah. And, if you, and if you see the scaffolding, the writer isn't doing his or her job, which is not to say we shouldn't be transparent. I think that's a different yeah. thing. Um, but yeah. but I think yeah, transparent. No, I, I agree, and I actually recently spoke at um, a writers group of all lawyers. Um, yes. who, it was really interesting because they're working on everything from memoir to a collection of um, jokes to um, novels to legal treatises. There, everyone was writing something else. But a lot of the things that I was able to talk to them about in terms of writing skills resonated no matter what they were doing. It just works. Like, so I agree with you. Writing, good writing, has a lot of the same. So I've 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 dabbled in some creative writing, not like you or anything, but I've dabbled in it. Um, and what I tell my students about legal writing, I think is true for creative writing, but I'm or non legal writing. But I'm curious, what do you think? I tell them first and foremost, there has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I don't mean to the story; I mean to every yeah. paragraph, every yeah, paragraph, and every, yeah. or, or, or every block of dialogue. Right. Needs needs to have a reason why it's there, with the trend, um, and then say exactly what you mean in as few words as possible. That's my favorite mm-hmm. one. What do you yeah. think of those two for creative writing? Um, well, I think that economy of language is always good, but I think you have more luxury in creative writing in that sometimes you can deviate for the point from the point or advancing the plot to illuminate something about character or to create a sense of place, right? Mm-hmm. That I mean, I still think you should use economy of language and be careful about what you give, but you're painting a picture. And, and in fact, one of the things that I do before every scene, I think if I was producing this, what would I need? Like, what would the lighting look like? What would I be talking to the cinematographer about? What would the production design team have brought in? Did we need someone from the greens department because we wanted plants, right? So I really think about that <laughs> and it helps me imagine, you know, in a, in a very few kind of, uh, economical use of words, the the space that we're in. Um, so yes, I think you want to be. You have a little more luxury, as I yeah. said. And the other one was your first one was um, uh, really every not every sentence or anything. Oh, but, beginning, but, middle, and end. Yeah. Yes, I, I actually do agree with that, and um, I think I. But I want to expand on it. Yeah. So um, one thing I want to say is that you know I believe all structure is a three act structure, uh, beginning, middle, and end. Even though in TV most movies are um, TV, there's also five, seven, or eight act structures, which is really just to fit around commercial breaks or other things. But um, really everything, every story has to have beginning, middle, and end. And there's actually a fantastic um, theory about why humans react to that, is that in a three-act structure, there's a, for film, there's a, uh, if you figure 120 pages, which is just for the sake of easy math. So the first act is um, 30 pages. The second act is 60. And the last act is 30. And the reason that we as humans identify that is the first act mirrors our youth. The second longer act with its Uh. complications, reversals, etc. is our middle age. And then we have, you know, a denouement, which is (laughs) for, you know, reflects our old age and our death. And so and also because of that, that instinctively humans reacted to that as a storytelling structure. And then, of course, it's been reinforced over years because most um, 
you know, a recent yeah. film that was not in uh, three act structure was La La Land had five acts, right? But right, right. But we feel a little jarred by that. You know, it's it's unconscious, but you know, people sometimes feel a little jarred by breaks in structure. It's I, on a very deep level because it's so acculturated. My wife and I were watching La La Land two nights ago, I think it was, and we saw it in the theater when it came out. And I watch it on cable a lot. And I want to really hate it, and I really love it, and I can't figure that out. Like, I want to hate that. There's something about that movie I want to hate, but I love to watch it. What made it work? I think that opening scene, the opening dance number on the freeway is, I just said, I thought it set such a high bar for the movie, and then didn't really stay at that bar. That was my feeling. Uh Like, I loved a lot of things about it, but... Um, I wished it had something that was a punch at the end that was as strong as that open. Yeah, we were. But, you know, we, it's easy to be a critic. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that a movie about Hollywood didn't have a Hollywood ending, and I was trying to figure that out. But um, Yeah, well, um, I think maybe that was the point, right? Yeah, I assume but, it was. Uh, so going back to uh, – well, let me ask you this question next. I, I, wanna, I do want to yeah. get back to producing, but before I do, um, yeah. so you're, you're, this is your language, entertainment lawyer in recovery. <laughs> That's what you wrote. What does that mean? Talk to me. (laughs) Okay. So um, this is my sorry truth. This is not a pretty story about me, but I'm I'm willing to share it. So, you know, I was a minor in writing, and I really considered myself an artist my whole life. And um, my parents uh, supported that. So I, you know, I graduated from college and I couldn't afford to move out of my parents' house. And I was working a job as a, you know, a baby editor at a magazine. And my father said, if you go to law school, I will pay for an apartment. And I was shallow enough to take that deal. (laughs) And so my then boyfriend was studying for the LSAT. So I thought, oh, okay, you know, (laughs) we'll do it together. And that's why I went to law school. So you know, I arrived there and, um, you know, with all these cutthroat kids who were ripping pages out of books in the library. And, you know, <laughs> I was sitting in a wide second position on the floor, stretching out my hips and, you know, eating <laughs> apple chips and going, who are these crazy people? Like, I just didn't <laughs> really belong. But once I once I um, got into it, I am competitive, not with other people, but with myself. And so you know, I ended up, you know, graduating in the top 10% and being articles editor of the Arts and Ent- Entertainment Law Review and having an article published and, um, you know, but then I I didn't, I had, I got sort of got lucky for someone who was sort of mixed right brain, left brain I, as I am, is that um, I my first job out of law school was through the Schubert organization and it oh, was wow. sort of a legal job, but it was also a creative job. Um, and from there, you know, I've done a lot of weird things in my life. I've not had a, you know, easy, well, not easy or straight path. <laughs> but so I, I was an executive at uh, Kaufman Astoria Studios in New York when that uh, place was getting off the ground. And I, uh, I, um, you know, I made independent movies out of my apartment in Greenwich Village and got them into Sundance and ultimately, you know, moved to LA. And I did some legal work on the side when I was getting started mostly in intellectual uh, uh, property, um, mostly Mm -hmm. represented writers, um, while I was trying to get my, you know, movie career off the ground. And, you know, um, I switched to writing, frankly, because I 
got divorced and my kids were little and producing meant I was gone all the time. Right. And I only had right. them half the week and I, you know, so I took a, I just bet on myself and that worked out really well until the 2008 writer's strike where I had, you know, was no longer a producer and executive. I wasn't on any of those lists anymore and there was no writing to be had um, for right. really the strike didn't last a year, but the anticipation of the strike and the aftermath lasted, you know, probably a year and a half, um, which is when I started teaching. You know, it's been yeah. <laughs> a long, and, strange trip. And you don't practice law anymore, I take it. I don't. I, you know, it comes in handy, and I and I'm an annoying client because I'm I read my actually read my contracts and I, I ask specific <laughs> questions. Do but, you miss Do you miss um, it at all? No, not a whit. I mean, yeah. I have a really interesting life right now. I, I run NYU Los Angeles, which is a yep. program for advanced students um, studying um, uh, media, entertainment, and tech, um, which is we launched last year. And of course, within my first year, I've had to pivot to the pandemic. So that, you know, keeps me busy. Yeah. Um, and I really, I really found, even though I describe myself as a, you know, a lawyer in recovery and an accidental academic. Um, because I began teaching um, yeah. out, of, out of the last strike. I really have come to love that. I, I love my work in education, and I was at USC for over 10 years, and yeah. I've been building this program, and I, I love that part of my life. And then I, you know, I have several shows in tele development for television, one based on my Burial Society series, mm -hmm. which is um, about, she's my badass avatar. She's a woman who uh, runs a private witness protection program and saves whistleblowers. And you had a badass side when you women. were 13, but we'll get back to that later. Go ahead. I'm still a badass. I, that's, I, I'm proud of that. But um, <laughs> I, my, my, you know, she, I, she, I feel like she, I march and I sign petitions and I donate money to causes I believe in. And Catherine goes out and kicks ass and right. takes out the bad guys. So that was right. very cathartic. <laughs> Most of my writing is about trying to get catharsis. Um, um, and then I have an original uh, pilot that I wrote, um, an original show, which is um, sort of a succession style show set in the weed business um, in Humboldt County, which is nice. all about, you know, the moral ambiguous lines, which is really where all my writing lives, <laughs> in the examination <laughs> of moral ambiguous lines. So, moral ambiguity so, is know, something we could talk about. TV work and, you know, I'm writing my fifth novel now and I uh, disclosed the deal for that. And, you know, promoting a book is a whole other level of work, yep. right? And I yep. just, you know, convinced came out in August. And so that's, you know, about writing essays and appearing on podcasts and going to, you know, used to be going to bookstores and libraries and conferences, but I did all that virtually, you know. Right. So first of all, I do not have time to be a lawyer journey anymore. And second, I'm gratefully in recovery because my experience of being a lawyer on the entertainment side was um, I did all this work and then everyone else got off, went off and had all the fun. Right. <laughs> when I, I um, um right. So in the summer of 1982... I clerked for Gibson Dunn, I summer interned for Gibson Dunn and Crutcher in Los Angeles. And, oh, yeah. And I worked on a case involving, to most people watching this or listening to this, they're going to be much too young to know anything about this because I was too young at the time to remember this. But whoever played Davy Crockett on TV was really famous. <laughs> and he, his estate or, was suing for residuals. 
and I had to learn all about residuals as this summer yeah, uh-huh. project. And I thought to myself, and, and I was working with the entertainment lawyers at Gibson Dunn, who I think are pretty, at the time, were really pretty prestigious entertainment lawyers. And I, and I remember, and this, I'm still in law school, but I remember thinking, and it, entertainment law feels as cutthroat as any corporate law I've been exposed to so far. I mean, just people were, the uh, depositions were as angry as I've ever seen. Is that a fair oh, oh. assessment? Yeah, I mean, look, here's the thing about this business that I have spent, you know, yeah. the majority of my adult life in, is that um, it attracts a lot of the best of the best, a lot of really bright creative, innovative thinkers, right? It really does. And part of the reason it does is that you can reinvent yourself here. You can go to film school, but you don't need to go to film school, right? right. You know, Steven Spielberg dropped out, right? I mean, you right. know, you, you can, it's not, you, it's not like becoming a doctor or a lawyer where, you know, training is required. And, and so you can reinvent yourself. And frankly, a lot of people who felt you know, out of place where they grew up, you know, a little odd, a little weird, you know, yes. also come to yes. Hollywood, right? Yes. So you have a lot of people, you know, with big, a lot to prove, you know, fragile egos masked by, you know, bluster and braggadocio, you know, <laughs> um, you're working in a business that is about creative energy and heart, but it's also, you know, first and foremost, a business. And yeah. You know, you have to, this is one of the things that I really love about having become a novelist um, in the middle of my life, is that um, if I, I have, I, and some novelists hate me for this, but I have sold every book I have taken to Ballantyne. They bought my first one, they have now bought my fifth one, right? In order for me to have a book in the world, I need an editor to say yes. And I need a publisher to say how much, right? That's the only two real answers I need. Then I go write a book, and then it is published in the world, right? It's a thing in the world. If I write a movie, right, um, I, I could write it on spec or I could write it as on an assignment. But either way, I have these voices in my ear, my agent, my manager, all who are going to have opinions, the producer and often their development person, maybe two or three development people. Then you have whoever you're making it with is financing, providing the money, right? In television, that's usually a two-tier structure, sometimes a two-tier structure, both a network and a studio, right? And all, and then you also have to have a director say yes. I'm looking at totally from the writer's perspective. Actors say yes. Someone say this is how much money you have. You have to have so many yeses before that thing you wrote exists in the world. And in fact, I have things I have produced exist in the world, but nothing I have written as a writer in television, although I have earned a lot of money from doing this, <laughs> has been made. Right? I get paid to write. But my things, then it becomes something that sit on my shelf, right? right? And I hate that, or, you know, just in a file in my computer. Writing a book is a much more direct way. And the funny thing is that I've sold three of my books to television. So now they're being... Really? Yeah. Well, let me ask you about so that. Just Fall, I, my first one, congrats. I sold to Stars. It didn't get made, but again, I got paid to write a script, so it was another revenue right. stream. <laughs> cool. So let, let me let me ask you about that because I'm I'm curious about that uh, that part of writing, whether it's for TV, Hollywood, streaming, whatever it is. Unlike a novel, where you and your editor might have clashes, but at the end of the day, it's your voice and it's your words, right. and you take full right. responsibility, right? Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I've written some satirical law pieces 
in my life. That's just um, that if I were to read them out loud, would sound one way. But if somebody else were to read them out loud, could sound the opposite of what I am trying. Oh, I see. To you mean say. that the satire might be lost? To the- yeah. Well, among other things. But I'm. But in in in, in non. In fi- I'm sorry. In fiction writing, I can't imagine anything more frustrating, even if you get paid. Then writing something and having a vision and then the director, producer, actors spit out what you wrote in ways that you don't like. Like, wouldn't that be incredibly annoying? Yeah. Well, you know, listen, uh, as an author, uh, have you heard the, con- the concept, I'm sure, of death of an- the death of the author, right? No, I haven't. So heard. No, once, no, talk to me. All right. No. So what that basically means is that once the book is done or whatever, the writing is done and it's out in the world, you, you're, you're dead, right? Yeah. It's, the, it's a live thing for its consumer, but how you intended it. You know, I've had people offended <laughs> by my book sometimes because – you know, sometimes, well, frankly, they're a little racy, like, Nina. They're a little racy. Yeah. Let's admit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Sometimes people <laughs> are offended, but, you know, but they're also, you know, political, and yeah. you know, and and they get and they're getting increasingly political because right. I, it's how I process all my fears and theories about the world. So, right. you know, so why my you, husband wait, says you process your theories about the world through writing. Fears and theories about the world, yeah. That's what we do it's all the all, time. <laughs> it's all for me. It is all catharsis. It is all how yeah. I stay sane or relatively sane. Right. Right. I actually just published a piece in Crime Reads um, called "Why Writing About Psychopaths Keeps Me Sane." Which I saw that, <laughs> and I was going to ask you. <laughs> but before I we're going to, I promise to return to psychopaths because <laughs> yeah. I've known one in my life, and it was the scariest thing in my existence. Um, oh, but yeah. who, who's now a really famous person? So it's very scary. But anyway. Um, no. I can't tell that story, but anyway, um, do writers? So, so let's take an let's take a hypothetical. I'm a law professor, a hypothetical um, okay. established writer who's had success, you know, in Hollywood, yeah. who's had two or three movies and they've been successful. And so Hollywoods are like, oh, if that person's willing to write the movie, we're interested, you know, maybe. Do they have any clout normally once the movie is being made to come in and say, wait a minute? You're saying that line that way, but the way you're saying it completely changes what I was trying to say. The, the, does the writer have yeah. any clout? In, yeah. in a movie, no. None. In, in TV, complete clout. Okay. This Inter- is why I'm only working in television. Right. And how about how about Netflix <laughs> and stream? How about, what, where, is, where is the streaming? Is that in between? Is that in TV? What, what is well, the streaming? Well, it, it depends on how it's structured, honestly. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly why it's developed this way but in the and I, I think a lot of it comes out of sort of the auteur uh theories of the 70s and french filmmaking but in in film the director is considered the ultimate right. creative voice right? right so and writers are often considered fungible you know there's often you know yes. 14 different people on a project you i've know? never so understood that, that but yes <laughs> yeah no i don't under i didn't understand it when i was producing i always yeah tried to protect the original you're protecting a voice right you're you know yeah. like and it becomes increasingly muddled the more you try to have different you know people smash in there yeah. um but anyway so i i think that um you know for so in film the director is king writer is frequently not even on set um, it depends. There are writers who may have, you know, more clout or have a relationship with the director, but frequently they're not on set. Frequently, um, you know, there used to be joke that they wouldn't be invited to the premiere. Like, you know, <laughs> writers are in film or, you know, unless you're, 
you know, of, of real eminence, you know, kind of sideline. In TV, it's completely different. The director comes in as a rotation player. Um, it does not, when you think about what the role is, right, uh, you know, it's building character, building the physical environment, picking locations. All of that is done before the director shows up on set for most television. And so they are a functionary. They're figuring out where to, you know, point the camera with existing uh, characters and dynamics and pieces of the story already set up. They're just a cog in a wheel. So, 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 um, so, and so it's it's interesting. It makes it yeah. much. I mean, it's a hard job in te television because right. you're, right. you know, you're both a money and physical production and creative all at once. I heard some very I forget who it was, but some very famous actor. I, I for some reason I think he was talking to Seinfeld on comedians and cars getting coffee. But I heard some famous actor somewhere say the reason that he was really excited about the streaming services and was spending most of his time there was you can tell a story over a long period of time without it having to be so formulaic and all but but can I tell you what hit me when he said that and I, I, I know nothing about the history of movies other than what I watch but mm -hmm. I do know that in the 30s I think or maybe the 40s serials were a thing where you went mm -hmm. to a movie theater and you didn't see the end you had to come back to see the end Right? right, and I think we've gone full circle to that because I think now to watch something good on Netflix takes fourteen different hours, and you know, and I'm wondering if you think there's a nice connection there. Well, I think that there's, um, I think that there's, you have to ask yourself as a creator, right? What, where will this story? How will this story best be told? Some things might be best told, like convince me my new book, which we're now just exploring as a potential adaptation, right? I, I don't think that's a series. I, I think I think that's a, a one shot. You know, it's a contained right. story. It has, you know, it has its revelations. I don't see that there's a plot engine in that that could keep it going in a serialized basis. Where the burial society books, by the very nature of what they are, a woman who has cases saving different people. can very lend itself to episodic television. Right. You know, then some things, you know, might lend themselves to webisode telling, right? Are there stories that are best told in increments of five minutes, right? So I think you have to really think about what is it I'm trying to say and what is the best way to express that and, you know, from the organic storytelling place and then figure out where it fits in the filmed universe. It's, it's funny, the way you said that, my wife teaches... Um, Problem solving, team building, and communication at Emory Business School, and mm. um, it's a very on the ground course, you know, and mm -hmm. and communication especially, and and I think which I think what she thinks, and I, and I think I agree with this with my, with my own legal writing is the structure comes first almost. I mean, not first. I mean, the idea comes first, but if you're trying to convince a CEO of something, you've got to figure out the right question, how to structure it, how to present it. Uh, all in a way that fits the environment that you're in. And I guess I feel like what you're doing is the same thing, kind of. It totally is. I mean, and if you look at one of my videos, one of them is what is writing. And the answer that I say to that is a series of answers to questions posed. Yeah. You know, you're, you're the writer posing yeah. questions. And then you're answering them saying character and craft, yeah. right? 
And so those are the sort of what, you know, that's a reactive way of looking at it, but that's what we have in our toolkit. I always ask myself first, well, what am I writing about, right? And then if it's fiction, who am I going, who are the best characters for me to, to create to explore those themes, right? Um, and then, I mean, for example, in my new book, one of the uh, things I'm exploring is, you know, collective grief and individual grief and how much can we bear, right? And so I have a character who is a therapist because that allows me to have patients coming into her all the time with their tales of what's going on in their lives, their injuries, their grievances, their pains in a way that's not about the, you know, does move the story along, but it's also about a way for me to explore that theme. And so that was choice of character, yeah. you know, to choose theme. Um, and then I think that, um, you know, then you just ask yourself questions. This is why I don't believe in writer's block. I think if you feel blocked, you just haven't asked yourself the right questions yet. What are the questions you're trying to solve? What are you trying to get your reader to think about? What is the conclusion you're trying to get them to reach? Reach, Or in the case of fiction, what is the misdirection you want them yeah. to accept? Um, <laughs> or you turn it around on them again. <laughs> writer's block is interesting. Um, now that I write almost a blog post a week, which I do, um, plus my books and articles and all that stuff, um, you know, writer's block hits me sometimes. And when it does... Um, sometimes it just does and take, take a couple of days off. But other times, there's a song by Stephen Sondheim from Sunday in the Park with George called Move On. Oh, I love that play. Yeah, Move On, you know. And, mm-hmm. Bernard, and, and I think it is a fantastic ode to when you're out of ideas, what do you do? You move on. You don't look, you know. You, yeah, you you, I mean, sometimes if I'm stuck, I'll say, all right, I'm going to go write that scene that I know is coming later. That yes. I, yeah. I'll just get there or I'll sketch something out or I'll or I'll find another. You know, I do believe that writing, good writing involves both vertical and lateral thinking. And vertical thinking is all that all the things you can learn. It's structure and craft and um, you know, logic and, and tropes, frankly, and stereotypes and all the things that you can yeah. lean into, right? And then the ver- the horizontal thinking is all that loosey-goosey sort of connectivity to the universe where, <laughs> in, you know, like, and this happens to me where I'm writing and all of a sudden stuff is coming out and I have no idea where it's coming from and it's almost like I'm channeling and and the book is going in a different direction than I necessarily thought. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's where it's going. And, and, and I think that comes from just, you know, letting go of structure. And, and you need both, right? You right. need, you know, if you don't have enough vertical thinking, you're going to be self-indulgent and vague. And if you don't have enough, you know, horizontal thinking, you're not going to be original, right? right. So you have to really... Find I'm, a balance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the psychopath in a minute, and it's, it's relevant this way. <laughs> um, so I'm reviewing a, I'm writing a, a long book review now of a book on originalism, and it, and a, a lot of the book is making me so mad. It just makes me so <laughs> mad, and I'm actually finding, and, and that doesn't happen very often in what I do, um, and I'm finding the anger is actually helping me channel some stuff like I I'm writing I almost never write angry I write puzzled I write I don't write angry and now but I'm writing this angry like I'm so mad at this, per, at this person D- does so you were saying that that writing is the way you cha- you channel your energies these days I'm assuming Trump is a part of that I'm assuming and yeah well, yeah. So um, I'll tell you the anecdote about yeah. writing convinced me so yeah. I um, I was triggered 
not in like the psychological sense, but the trigger for the book was reading a particular um, article about an example of um, a pathological liar, unrepentant, um, and um, his white male privilege and how he was not going to be at all um, affected, right? There was an article, one article that, and I'm not going to name names again, but there was one article that I read that said, you know, these are all the horrible things he's done. Right. And, and then there was an article the next day of follow-up, what's going to happen to him? And the answer was absolutely nothing. He was making people money. He hadn't broken yeah. any technical laws, right? And I, I was like, the for some reason, this was the last straw for me. <laughs> and the entire plot for the book came into my head, literally like an arrow in my forehead. And for the next four and a half half months I felt I'm pulling it out inch by inch into the computer and normally I'm kind of a mule when I write I set my hours I sit down for my hours I work you know whether the work is good or bad I, you know and but this I was waking up in the middle of the night to write I was <laughs> jotting things down you know in the middle of doing other things I was I was just absolutely crazy and the entire book came into my head including the final twist like I, I just knew it this has never happened to me before and i was but it, it was so cathartic to write it it was just unbelievably cathartic and um spoiler that my i created a character of a pathological liar unrepentant um, and I kill him before the book begins. The book starts at his funeral. That's why it's not a spoiler. But I have to tell you that that was the most cathartic thing I did. Um, you know, the book is... Can I curse on this podcast? Yes, yes. Um, or I'll, okay, so the book, dedication says this book is for everyone who's sick and tired of the fucking liars and their fucking lies. And, um, and it's funny, um, that that's what it was. It was me saying I'm so mad. And, and so I... I I didn't want this pathological liar to have the ability to defend himself or deflect from right. his crimes in the way that he had done in real life, in, in, when he was alive, not that he was real, um, but the way he had done before um, I killed him. And so it was immensely satisfying. Like, I, I sat down to write that book, and, and I knew he was dead, and it just made me feel so happy. Um, and the funny thing is, is that that dedication on the Kindle version of the book is on the very last page instead of the front piece of the book. And um, one of uh, one, one thing that keeps happening is that people are leaving reviews on Amazon or whatever, and they're saying, and I got to that dedication, and I knew that she wrote the book for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's great. Isn't that isn't that? So I feel like it's resonating. <laughs> yeah, that's I can't imagine a better compliment. Um Yes, we exactly. we we are heading towards the end of time. So, uh, and this has been unbelievable. I've really enjoyed this. So, but I do want really to. Fun. I would be remiss if I did not um, <laughs> discuss how we met, and and part of this is because I um, at one of my episodes I talked a lot about parenting, and I think a lot of a lot of parent. I know your kids are older, but a lot of parents are struggling right now. Obviously. During this. I'm struggling right now. I have yeah. one kid who's in the path of the Portland wildfires and another Ugh. kid who's just had his third hurricane warning in New Orleans. So I'm like, right. you know, yeah. so, <laughs> I am, yes, struggling like every other parent. So you and I met in the summer of 1971 um, in Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, at a summer camp. And we had a seventh grade thing by seventh grade standards. Um, um, <laughs> I know you were my first kiss. Uh, you were mine. <laughs> Turns out. Um, All right, secrets so, out, everybody. <laughs> um, 
I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure how I'm going to put that on Twitter, but I think I'm going to. Um, I've learned that a good tweet is worth a thousand words. Um, <laughs> my blog posts get read only by the how good I, how well I can tweet them out, not what the blog yeah, posts actually say. Right. But anyway, um, so but when you and I went to camp and we were privileged, and this you know not everybody oh, gets to go to summer camp. Yeah. yeah, but 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 in New York in 1971, and I think still today. Kids went for two months. Like we were, we were oh, gone yeah. for, we were gone for, I think nine weeks, eight or nine weeks. With yeah. these days, I don't think. I, I I think I mean my kids go to summer camp, sleepaway camp, and they don't let them take cell phones or anything. But mm. they go for in the south for one week, two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks. Would is not a thing down here, really. Right. I think with with cell phones and and the internet and stuff that we didn't have, obviously. Um, I think being away from my parents, who I loved, uh, that summer was such a cathartic, wonderful thing for me, and you were part of that. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of think our kids don't get that today, and that's bad. And I'm wondering what what you what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I I loved camp. I had all my firsts at camp. And, <laughs> uh, you know, just – and I, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah. But I also um, – I also just, um, you know, I love that, that sense of freedom. I think the first summer I went, I was eight and I cried half the summer, but I couldn't wait after that. I couldn't wait to go back. And yeah. and I did things at camp and that I never would have done. I had a little farming plot. I learned how to, you know, make silver jewelry. I mean, I just did things that, you know, were very, as you say, very privileged. Um, but well, I think also very good for me. I remember spending one summer Hugging, you know, pinning bugs to a board. Like, you know, I, I grew up in New York City. I, I you know. No, we camped bugs, out, trees. you and I. We, not... we camped out in the woods. It might have been the last time I've camped out, right? Except for one time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that. I've camped out since. But, <laughs> but, you know, I was such a city kid, which was partly why my parents began sending me to camp yeah. because, you know, I was afraid of grass and, you know, I just was right. uncomfortable in concrete. And they were like, get this girl into some fresh air. But um, but I loved it. My my daughter didn't end up going to camp. Um, my son did. Uh, I think it was great for him. Um, and I think it really does build skills of self-sufficiency and, you know, and I also, lo- you know, love my parents. It wasn't about wanting to get away. Right. It was just a really special time to, you know, develop self-reliance, I think. I, I agree. I, I think I, I, there's a friend of mine, Pete Dominic, who had a radio show on XM for 15 years and now those podcasts. And he and I have talked – I have three daughters. He has two. We've talked a lot about helicopter parenting. Um, mm, but in a, terrible. In, in, but, but the cliche <laughs> is not what we mean. Um, there is something liberating about knowing that absent emergency, you really can't reach your parents. And that's yeah. not true. And that's not true anymore. That doesn't. Really and I think it's actually um, good for parents to also yeah. realize you can't reach your kids. Yes. I, you know, my father, who is, you know, what brilliant man um, and achieved a lot in his life. Um, but one of the smartest things he ever said to me was the hardest part of parenting is letting go. And, you know, that was that's proven absolutely true. Agree 100 you know, percent. Like, Hundred percent. Going yeah. from these beings who are completely dependent on you yeah. to recognizing that you know they're out there in the world. I honestly feel like it's like having a piece of your heart unprotected by bone and sinew and muscle and skin, <laughs> just out there wandering the universe, yeah. Yeah. completely vulnerable. It's it's the most terrible thing. Is parenting business. 
yeah. love them so much. It's terrible. <laughs> it is. And, 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 and we have to let them go. My friend got in trouble on the radio when he told a story about his tenure. I think she was 10 at the time, maybe 11. He let her walk the neighborhood. He, he lives 45 minutes from New York City in one of the, not White Plains, but someplace up there. And um, people thought he was crazy let his 10-year-old daughter or 10-and-a-half-year-old daughter walk five blocks to wherever she was going. And, and he said she's a much better chance of dying in the shower or slipping in the shower. Statistically, she has a much better chance of slipping in the shower yeah. than she does of getting kidnapped, at, you know, um, right. and, and, and that spirals out. Um, so I don't know if you remember this. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not a religious person at all, but I, I have some, I don't know, um, I do believe in some kind of karma. I can't figure it out exactly. But not the year that, not the seventh grade year that you and I spent together, but two years before that. You actually went out with a, my best friend at that same camp, a guy named Michael okay. Smolin. I didn't think you'd remember this. A guy named Michael Smolin. You were probably 11 or 10 or something. But what I remember about <laughs> What a hussy I was at 10 going out with boys. <laughs> this is going to amaze you. He was obsessed with movies. Obsessed. Oh, really? Yes. He, he talked about horror movies all the time. How funny. The I one know. genre I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 well, the one where the, the our relationship dra- didn't last. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought of, when I – so when I saw you on the internet, I don't know. Somehow I saw your name somewhere a few years ago. And I saw you were in movies with Meg Ryan and all that stuff. Um, and I thought, wow, she, she, she knew what she wanted at 10. <laughs> I actually didn't. I mean, I, you know, I really didn't discover movies till I worked at Astoria Studios. I, I really was all about live theater and, and dance. Yeah. And then yeah. um, at, when I left the Schubert organization, um, I got a job at Astoria Studios. And I, this is honestly what happened. I got completely romanced. I, I began to wander onto sets and just ask people, what do you do? What's that called? Uh, you wow. know, I got a little glimpse behind the curtain. And then, then there were a couple of movies that I saw that really impacted me. Like, and this, this I'll never forget is that the, the bar scene in the first Star Wars movie, the Cantina. Yeah, a lot of people um, say that. that, 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 that yeah, yeah, that that really transported me in a way. And then, you know, I had been I had been a reader, you know, and a live theater person. I, I was kind of snobby about filmed entertainment. I don't know why, um, you know, I don't know why, but. Um, because I just loved, I think, you know, performing. I performed a lot as a kid, and I just loved yeah. that so much. But once I got hooked on it and began to see, you know, how complex it was, and and then and I also realized that I could really merge my creative skills, my legal background and training, and and the business sense, right? I could I could make all of that work together. And I am a creative producer when I produce. You know, now I'm really focusing on the writing. I, I think it's my strength. I only really want to produce my own stuff. I'm not producing other people's things right now. Um, but it took me a while to find my way back to to what I felt was my real identity, which was this creative person. Right. You know, I, I think partly because there was a lot of fear that could you earn a living as a creative, right? You right. know. Um, Certainly, I can't, that's I'm why sure that sure fear my parents pushed runs me to go to law school. I'm sure that fear, sorry, I'm sure that fear runs throughout Hollywood at, at every, oh, every level. yeah. And listen, you know, it is not easy. I have had some really good years and I have had some really terrible years. Yeah. And, you know, you have to, I think a lot of people just give up on Hollywood because they either don't have the financial wherewithal to keep going, which I totally get, 
or the psychological stamina just to keep yeah. going in the face of, you know, 99% rejection. I mean, you know, that's the truth of it. So, you know, it, you have to really figure, figure it out if you want to go the distance. Um, yeah. That, that's how I always yeah. kind of imagined it. Um, I think Grueling when your business, <laughs> when your business is creating illusion, <laughs> That's going to run deep. Anyway, Nina, this has been wonderful. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great chat. and um, I've learned a lot, and it was good to reconnect. And I, yeah. and I wish you – I want to see your, your stuff on TV soon. I'm sure I will. All right, great. <laughs> and uh, if I can just give a plug, if you yeah. want to uh, read my Cheerfully Dark Dispatches. Um, yep. They, I, you can go to my website, ninasadowski.com, and sign up. And uh, I'm also just sponsoring a short story contest. Um, I saw that. Excellent. On the subject of liars and lies, yeah. 500 words, submit through the website. The winner um, will be published through the dispatch, which reaches about 8,000 people. Great. And um, we'll also get some swag in the mail from me. Well, I, I think so. um, when you say cheerfully dark, is the only way one can be in Trump's America, but we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> yes. Thank I'm you so much. I'm dark Nina. and resolutely resilient. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was great to see you. All right. Great. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.